There are many ways to enter Sligo and begin to measure its depths. By air, in across the bay to land at Strand Hill, through the words and myths and poetic landscapes of Yeats, through its clear, lovely, traditional music, or by sea, from the Atlantic to the distinctive shoreline, where the first settlers to this Shelley place rode in thousands of years ago. So you have shell mittens in Sligo. There's a lot of them in the bays of Sligo. And there's a line in the sand there that you can see. There's a whole lot of shellfish remains. And as archaeologists, when you, you look at the amount of middens, then you can tell, OK, there was a considerable population in the Neolithic and the Mesolithic in Sligo. Because we, we can see that by the concentration of marine mollusks that have been left behind after feasting. So middens are an important archaeological site. The shoreline at Strida holds worlds of life and history. This is a hard coast and Sligo has a hard history. Whatever way you enter the county, you'll find things you didn't expect. Shadows, edges, a thin line between sea and sky, between then and now. Stay a while and something enters you. This county has a draw that's hard to define, but it's real. You're listening to The County Measure. I'm Vincent Woods. We're making a journey around Ireland 100 years after independence to get a measure, to get many measures of all 32 counties. We're looking at place, landscape and the people who shape their lives within these boundaries of community and county. In this new series, I'm hoping to get a fresh understanding of each county and its people as we shape a radio atlas of Ireland. Sligo Town on a busy weekend morning. How often I've walked these streets, but never before have I entered one particular shop on Wine Street, what used to be a butcher's shop, door open, an intriguing sound drawing me in. And I meet Michael Quirk. Hello, Michael. You're tapping. Tapping away, tapping away. <laughs> Michael is standing behind the old butcher's serving counter, carving a block of wood secured in a vice. These are all... Local woods, beech, sycamore, ash, and so on, you know. And uh, they'd be the three main woods. And what I'd concentrate on are local characters. The local characters are actually mythological figures. And Michael is carving their facial features into a rectangular piece of wood about the size of a log you'd put on a fire. You've got the four heroes of the two Jadanon. Lou for Lunasa, and coming to Ogma for Samhain. And I'll have Dijamor for Imbolc and then the Gubborn. They'll have an eye and a nose in common, but there'll be different faces. And then they'll be tied together, hopefully, with the great serpent, Crom Croak, coiling round the bottom. And it's all here, Michael. It's all there. On and one the, piece of your the, carving. And What's the wood in this? It's beech. Beech. The very best wood to carve. Sycamore is good too. And Michael, what, what inspired you? What brought you to carving. We've got several days. We have a week. I was a butcher here. This is a butcher shop. My dad was a butcher. This place was built back in 1928. I started working here in 1957 as a butcher when I did my leaving. I got it by that much. <laughs> That's enough. <laughs> That's enough. Uh, I started carving in 68 and then I continued on. My dad was alive until 88 and then when he died I dropped the meat and I went full time at this so that's the story but that's not the story at all the point is there was no art in my time the holy nuns Mother Mary of the Fallen Arches let us play with Marla in low babies junior infant to you we see and in high babies she, she informed us that it was time to be learning our lessons I wasn't too keen on that didn't like the sound of that at all <laughs> so I kept on with me plasticine me Marla and by the time I was nine or ten, I could do anything in plasticine. It's different from drawing. A good few people can draw and paint. It's good. But very few would have yes. the, the three-dimensional image. It made it almost easy for me to start carving. That you, as soon as I would do his nose, I'd see his elbow, you know, and so on. So it worked. It's down to imagination, you know. I mean, the skill involved in this is minimal. 
Anybody that could hammer in a nail could do this. But you must visualise the thing. Uh, you know, uh, Michelangelo said, uh, when I carve an elephant or whatever, what I do is I take away the bits that aren't an elephant, which are then Italians and Italian, you know. <laughs> Mighty. God bless you. Michael Quirk, butcher turned carver on Wine Street in Sligo. Like so many counties, Sligo's towns have many fine old buildings and shops. Too many of them derelict, neglected, in need of a turnaround, a lift, a revival. You see that in the centre of Sligo town too, and hear the gritty, go-to attitude of young artists involved in the strongly community-based Corja Sligo Arts Festival and Visual Arts Trail has prompted a temporary use for these empty spaces. On the day we're here, several shop windows are displaying art, including some fine charcoal drawings. Contrast, light and shade, great darkness in there. The artist is Sligo-based Michael Mann, and his work is displayed in the old Peter John's shop in the town centre. And I remember this as a... I think it was a man's clothes shop. I remember some of these buildings when they were thriving shops. I was going into a, a shop that I, I used to visit regularly years ago, and I loved it uh, on O'Connell Street here, an old newsagent's card shop. A very, very busy shop it was in its day. And uh, I know it's been empty for about ten years, so it'll be interesting to see what... What lies inside the door? We go. Oh, gosh. Wow. Wires down from the ceiling, the old CCTV still there. Yeah, smell of damp, smell of mould. It is striking that uh, here is this really big space mm-hmm. and it's been lying empty for 10 years. Mm-hmm. And uh, I imagine this could be invaluable to visual artists, for example. I think any space. Hannah Dobson is part of the Baja Visual Arts Collective and the coordinator of the Corja Festival Visual Arts Trail. I think a big part of the Visual Arts Trail is showing the potentials of the buildings, not just what they were, but what they could be and what different types of people could do with the space, as in artists or commercial. Tell me about the Baja Visual Arts Collective. You know, who, who, who are you and, and what's the idea around it? In 2018, myself and two friends, we had just come back from art college and we kind of had all seen how spaces were becoming more vacant in the centre of town. And as we were sort of making a space for ourselves as artists, we said, why not use spaces that aren't being currently used? So we've had two exhibitions in empty spaces and that's essentially what we do is jump in and then we purpose build our sculptures for those spaces. Is there a potential for for a county-wide basis for this as well? Because it strikes me that, you know, in travelling around the county, one sees so many empty buildings. Definitely. Like, our dream is really to kind of expand right across the county. Tara McGowan, director of the Corja Sligo Arts Festival. But it's like stepping stones. The first step is to get this trail together and to have the positive responses that we're having. As in other towns in the county, it's strange to walk the streets and see so many old, sometimes iconic shops and bars derelict. That's my oh, first I point. So well. <laughs> in yeah. there, you know. Even if art gives them a temporary lift and life. And it's great to see beautiful old windows like this come back to life and have people stop and look. What's Sligo like as young people working the arts? Is it a good place to be? Can you envisage making a future here? You never really feel too lonely when you're when you're trying to do something. There's always someone who you can call or someone that you can ask for help. Uh, so I definitely think that. Well, I'm going to say in Sligo, and I definitely want to. And I want to. I want to make art here, and I want to continue what we're doing. You know, you can't deny the energy of the northwest. Part of what brought me back was the sea and the freshness and the landscape. And I think you know much of this trail and, and much of the work that's happening during the festival is also responding to you know this incredible place that we you know we're privileged to call home we love Sligo uh, you know it's a fantastic <laughs> place to be
There is always music on the go in Sligo. This is the place of Tom Moore and Midnight Well, Rick Epping, Cathy Jordan, Joe O'Dowd and Shamey, the McGlynns, and making their own distinctive sound these days, with their very striking name, is Moxie. The word Moxie, it's a Latin word, and it means the ability to face difficulty with courage and spirit. It suited us at the time because we were coming from traditional music and then we were fusing it with other types of music, so the name suited us, you know, it was brave and we wanted to break the barriers and kind of move away from traditional but also keep the elements of traditional, so... Moxie somehow is a good old ring of Sligo about it. And I actually had people telling me that Moxie was a slang word from Sligo, but they weren't sure what it meant. So you see, it worked, the name. Well, the name we'll, we'll keep it worked. at that, will we? We'll say it is a slang word. Moxie, the Sligo-based fusion band, was formed in 2011 and has a new singer, Julius Spanu. But we, we're, we're predominantly not just a Sligo band. It's a kind of a Limerick Sligo band with Tunisia now as well. Amongst other things. Julie, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> what are the other things? How did you come into the picture in the band? I grew up in Tunisia, but I come from different uh, cultures. I'm part French, Italian and Vietnamese. Landed in Dublin in 2016 with my backpack, looking for excitement or, I don't know, something. like, And just bumped into Ted in Temple Bar. Very cliche, but it's the truth. <laughs> and they took me around the country to trad music festivals. And it was just such a big discovery for me. But all the same, like, I felt like I fitted. I didn't know that Julia sang. I say we knew each other two years before I knew she actually sang. And then we, we invited her up to do a song with us. And then we were just blown away. We were like, Julia, you've a savage voice. Why don't you join the band? <laughs> <laughs> That's great. You were yeah. there all the time. I used to go to this uh, record shop and um, I just picked a record by the Coors called Home. And there was this song in particular that I just couldn't stop listening to and then just tried to learn phonetically. Like, I, I remember writing down a piece of paper, like, the syllables and, like, the letters and stuff, and then pause, like, each line. It's very obsessive. It's kind of crazy when I, I, <laughs> I listen to myself right now. But uh, that's what happened. And then, I guess, fate bringing me here and then making me sing that song with the band was yeah. just kind of like, maybe that was meant to be. You're listening to The County Measure and we're in Sligo. We've made our way to the coast and here in Strand Hill people come to the seafront to stroll, walk their dogs and to surf. Plenty of people seated and watching. Blohin Sweeney comes here to teach yoga in a valley just behind the sand dunes. I usually set up class just over here. This is Shelley Valley in Strand Hill. Yeah, it's really calm. It's a really yeah, calm place. Yeah, calmness in here, yeah. yeah. Blohin left her job as an organic chemist and now teaches special yoga classes for people learning to surf. So you don't actually teach people how to surf. You're not an instructor, no. but you prepare them for that yeah. process. Yeah, well, we do a nice kind of combination event where we take people, they get into their wetsuits, we go down onto the beachfront, talk about 
the waves, the energy, the constant movement that you can't predict it, you can't control it, you can't decide I want the wave to do this now because I've decided I want to learn this particular skill so that they get the feeling of the movement of water and, and what it can bring for themselves and to try and stay centred in themselves. Are you a surfer yourself? Yes. <laughs> you might have noticed my head twisted as we were walking down the beach. I'm like, yeah, yeah, I'm <laughs> Yeah, the surf is pretty good today. What does it give you? Perspective. On just a very real, tangible level, on any given day, can just feel a lot of anxiety around emails that need to be sent and all that. I often find when I come back, I'm not as intimidated by the work that has to be done. And of course, your background is in science. Yeah. And I'm intrigued at that idea of how there might even be a scientific basis for how being in the water, being in the sea, yeah. surfing, swimming is good for us physically, yeah. what, it, what it does yeah. to us. Oh, there's a few different ways you can look at it. I mean, even if you're not in the sea, just being on the shoreline beside the pounding ocean, there's a, an effect of a release of charged particles. And like where we are right now, there's a higher concentration of those particles in the air. So when you're breathing, it means that your body's better able to absorb the oxygen because of that charged air. It's the same effect in forests, by waterfalls, and after a thunderstorm or a heavy rain downpour. There's also um, the vibration. So the sound of the ocean can be soothing to the ears and cognitively it's soothing, but it actually is also felt by your body on the surface of your cells. On the surface of our cells, we have receptor sites, which are very complex molecules. So, of course, when I started looking into this, I got very excited because chemistry is my background. But molecules aren't um, static. They're always oscillating and vibrating. When a person might be, say... um, long-term depression or after a trauma or long-term stress in their lives, the ability of those receptor sites to oscillate and to move or to dance, as I like to think about it, is reduced. So yeah, being in the presence of the ocean, waterfalls, birdsong, music, helps bring the surface of your cells back to life. Blohan, you mentioned your own personal tragedy and I think you had direct experience of the terrible loss of suicide. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so that was about 10 years ago. It's, it's a, yeah, the, the grief of suicide, no, there's no grief that's easy, but it's an extra twist in the unravelling of it. And, yeah, and myself, that's your partner. Yeah, we were in Australia at the time. Brought us home, I suppose, in the end. So even in a time of such grief, it was also I was starting to see all these new ways of living. And I suppose within that, just being brave enough to say, OK, I'm going to do what I have to do to be OK. So yeah. Sligo has been and is a healing place for oh, you. Oh, without a doubt. I've felt that so many times, the people in Sligo, the places, the gatherings, the dramas and and the good times, all of it. Cliffany, uh, towards Mullet Moor, and you always get this slight frisson, you know, when you come into when Classy Bourne comes into into view, you know, the the home of Lord Mountbatten when he was in Ireland and his family, and of course those terrible events of of August 1979. I was in neighbouring County Leitrim on the day Mountbatten was killed. I remember someone saying to me. History knows no tense. It happens in the present, past and future. Classyborn Castle was built on the townland of Mullochgar, which was cleared of its tenants by Lord Palmerston, so his summer home would have unhindered views of the sea. Stand on Nimmo's Pier in Mullochmoor on a summer day now, and you might never know any of this, but it's never far away. Today, though, we're turning to Inishmurry, a small island seven kilometres offshore, famous for its 6th century monastic settlement. And I'm driving here right onto the Mulchmore Peninsula to talk to Joe McGowan about the island and its particular traditions. Joe. Joe used to be a commercial boat operator. He's also a folklorist and historian. Lovely to meet you again. You're very welcome. Yes, thanks a million. For years, he ferried visitors to and from the island. Now, he writes about it. Joe McGowan, a fine view here from, from your, your back garden out over to Inish Murray and Classy Bourne and Ben Bulban. And it, it, 
you you spent many a year in and out to that great island of Vinish Oh, too. I did indeed. Yes, I spent some magical times there. There's something spiritual about the island. I don't know what it is. If it's the old uh, vernacular buildings that are still there. Because it was a monastic settlement, wasn't it? Really? There was a monastic settlement there in the 6th century. That was St. Malash. But I remember as well from Inish Murray, Joe, the famous cursing stones. What was the power? What was believed to be the power of the cursing stones? That you was could it curse somebody. Could curse somebody it, with that them? you could curse somebody if you wanted to. That if they did you were wrong or something like that. And there was a formula for the curse. On the first day, you fasted. On the second day, you had one meal. And on the third day, you went to the stones and you turned them three times. Each time that you turned the stones, it was that much more effective. Now, one needed to be careful because it is said and believed that if the curse was unjustified, that it would fall back on the person that was doing the cursing. Joe places a small pockmarked stone, smaller than a football, in my hands. It's like a small perfect little loaf of bread. It's a cursing stone. Fit in one hand, but a good, solid, serious stone. Yeah, well, the reason I have this stone here, believe me, I wouldn't take it off Inishmore Island because a curse follows the people that take the stones. And on several occasions, people have taken the stones and they have had all kinds of noises around the house. They've had bad luck, they've had animals die, they've had deaths in the family and that. And they were very anxious to get the stone back to Inishmore Island because they know of that curse. So the reason I have this stone, it was given to me so at the first available opportunity, I'm certainly going to uh, bring, that uh, bring that back to where it belongs on the island. And am I right, Joan, thinking that Inish Murray had some link to Tory Island off Donegal? The only connection with Tory is the Curson Stones, because it's a famous story and perhaps better known than the Inish Murray story, where the ship, the Wasp, a revenue cutter that was coming to the island to collect taxes, I think the islanders owed around 300 pounds at the time, which I suppose would be quite a lot more now. But they turned the stones against the ship and the ship sank. I have this stone in my hand. <laughs> yeah. Well, that has to go back. If I don't bring it back, yeah. I'm, I'm not prepared to suffer the consequences. Yeah, but I will bring it back. It will go back, yeah. Carakeel, Creevykeel, Knocknaray, Lissadell, Maharao, Ellen's Pub, writer Leland Bardwell galloping on horseback on the Strand, Sebastian Barry reimagining Sligo lives and places to make literature. This county is rich and layered, and one of the people who wrote passionately out of here was Dermot Healy, whose long poem A Fool's Errand has been given a setting for voice and music by composer Nick Roth. Dermot Healy was a poet and author and wrote a book-length poem called A Fool's Errand, talking about the barnacle geese and their journey around the world, stopping off in Maharao, where he lived. And I wrote a setting of the poem for three musicians, an actor and a painter, including the voices of 49 of Dermot's friends and family reading a page each of the poem. He lived in Maharao on this house that he bought in the middle of the night and he couldn't even see the house when he bought it. Apparently they signed the contract by matchlight. And uh, it's literally on the edge of a cliff over a rock called Serpent's Rock in Maharao. And the barnacle geese spend six months of the year in Iceland where they breed and then they, they fly over to Ireland from kind of October to April and they sleep on Inish Murray Island, uh, which has a kind of an old monastic settlement on it, just off the coast. And then at sunrise every day, they fly in and they feed on the eelgrass in Maharao in the fields there. And then they fly back at sunset. And his house was directly in the flight path. And sometimes there's a flock of up to maybe 12,000 birds. And it's a sound and it's a sight. Overhead, an arrowhead of stars follows after an arrowhead of geese, both shot from the one bow that is no more. The stars that appear forever 
hover there directing the flight of the geese to the island. Here is the tune, this is the path, this is the way, they say, and keep the faith as you cross the jealous wall built from the ruins of the invisible room. He talks about the voices of the birds and the, the orchestra of memory because for him it was a bit like a clock. It would be there at sunrise or just before sunrise. It would be there at sunset. And it kind of marked the hours in a way. The book itself, The Fool's Errand, is kind of the circumnavigation of the geese across the year. It includes two funerals of friends that died. And the geese are kind of marking the letters of this story of the year. But then reading the poem, you realize that it has this incredible uh, locality and universality. So in, in these kind of details of very particular uh, aspects of life in Maharao, he's telling a very universal story. The late November list. If I had never looked up into the skies or heard your sad, triumphant cries... Oh, gosling, goose, barnacle. I still think you go back into the past with your wing-beating, fierce, left-handed sound to a pub in Leitrim at closing time where the men are calling out their goodbyes to ghosts who believe in humans because they die. You're listening to The County Measure. Coming up, an IRA cave in Glencar, the legacy of musician Michael Coleman, and celebrating Sligo Rovers. You're listening to The County Measure with Vincent Woods. Organic farming has been a feature of life in Sligo and the Northwest for decades. And one of the regular outlets for the sale of produce is the weekly farmer's market in the grounds of the Atlantic Technological University. Here you find what might be termed rooted diversity. I sell like gluten and dairy-free products from Italy, because I'm from Italy. Excellent falafel. Mm. Yeah, it's nice falafel, yeah. It's our Goan traditional fish curry rice. So everything is vegan, muffins, cookies, cakes. Are you next, okay? Yeah, yeah. You make it very good. My name is Guy, Guy Marsden, and I would have been one of the founder members who got the market going originally. We started just over 18 years ago, and effectively we started because there wasn't anything of this kind in the town at the time. And it's, it's very interesting because it feels like a microcosm of not only the country, but the county, you know, of Sligo generally, with new Irish people who've arrived, whose home is here now. Always my key thing to everyone is I want to bring variety and choice. And so as a result, I try to get people doing unique, different things on each stall. In the stall beside Guy, a Syrian family is selling Middle Eastern food. We're selling traditional Syrian foods to get people to know the taste of Syria. And we have like dips like hummus and baba ganoush. They're really good too. There are also local fruits and plants. We're selling organic transplant vegetables. Polish bread. Hello. And French pancakes. Here you are, monsieur. Another crepe is coming now. <laughs> I live in Sligo for 35 years now. Uh, Sligo is the, the great outdoor. The great outdoor and the music. Are you next, OK? Uh, yeah. You make a very good crepe. I don't want to jump in, but me and, the, me and my young lad were in Montmartre. We were in Paris. We were in all different parts of France. And every time he finishes a crepe, he always says... This is nothing like Shea Philippe's crepe in Sligo. And I'm not, that's not a soundbite. I'm not saying that. That is a 100% fact. You will not find anything that tastes as good as what this man does. <laughs> the lovely, soft landscapes of South Sligo seem a world away from the coast, the mountains and the drive of commercial tourism. This is home place to the music of Michael Coleman, celebrated fiddle player and composer from Nochgrogne near Ballymote. His New York recordings a century ago have had an enduring influence on traditional music. 
in the Coleman Traditional Irish Music Centre in Gurchin, I meet musician and writer Gregory Daly, who is eloquent on the South Sligo style of playing. The music of South Sligo, generally, very particular, very important. Tell us a little bit about it. The South Sligo tradition was hugely important in the development of contemporary traditional music. The Sligo music generally is a very flamboyant style. The left hand, which does the finger work, is very, very highly ornamented with rolls, with grace notes, with double stops. The bowing is a particular style of bowing as well. And a lot of cross-bowing. We keep the bow going rather than, than changing all the time, so... The Coleman Centre is dedicated to passing on the legacy of Michael Coleman's music and Fiona Gallagher is one of the teachers. Fiona Gallagher, the the centre here, um, you know, I presume it does a great deal more than honour Coleman's legacy, which it does very well, but it seems to be an integral part of the community and almost in in honouring the music seems to be a way of, of drawing the community in around it. It is. We have a lot of things going on here. We have the Coleman Music School, so we run classes all year round. Now, coming up to the summer, we have um, we do the session. So we've got people from very young people coming in playing, and then on Wednesday nights, visitors can come in and play as well. Not just the fiddle, uh, fiddles, flutes, guitars, bow run singing. I just wonder, is it fanciful to imagine that landscape influences the style of playing, the shape of landscape? Probably more the weather. <laughs> you're stuck inside and you, you, you can spend a whole afternoon playing tunes <laughs> and learning the repertoire. Um, you'd probably find it in the names of tunes, definitely. There's a certain setting of a tune, but yet when people play it, there's all sorts of subtle variations. It's the same, but never the same. And a good musician will never play a tune exactly the same way twice you know there's always subtle variations that to me is very like the landscape i mean the landscape is fixed and there and permanent but it's it's never the same would you play a tune together Horace? Writer Louise Kennedy moved to Sligo in the 1990s and the landscapes of the place inform many of her powerful short stories. One of the spots she found early on is Hazelwood. I first went to Hazelwood on the 18th of March 1988 to walk off a St Patrick's Day hangover. The friend I was visiting drove us out and away from the town, parking beside the place they call Half Moon Bay. We brought crusts for the mallards and swans and when they were fed, we set out along the lakeside path. A sculpture trail had been installed a couple of years earlier, described as a dreamlike procession flitting across one's line of vision to the shores of Loch Gill. At the time, a South Korean company was producing videotapes from a 500,000 square foot factory nearby and the sickly burn of molten plastic hung low in the air. Someone told me later that industry needs a vast supply of water and the locals were glad of the jobs. The ancient woods had for over 400 years been part of Hazelwood Domain, an estate owned by the Wynne family who raced yachts on Loch Gill and competed at polo, rowing and shooting throughout the 19th century. William Butler Yeats set the Song of Wandering Angus in Hazelwood. His mother's family had a long association with the estate During the famine, a win paid the Middleton and Pollocksfen Shipping Company £364 for 81 emigrant passages to Canada. Hazelwood was both a playground for the Anglo-Irish ascendancy and a place from which tenants were banished. 
I moved to Sligo in the spring of 1999. I bought my first house, met a man, had a couple of children. They took their first steps in those woods, the soggy leaves and gnarly roots, delightful if difficult terrain for their weak feet. By then, many of the wooden objects had fallen victim to vandalism and the elements, but some remained. The imposing chariot a wooden man had once ridden had fallen away, and my children called the vehicleless, squatting figure, Toilet Man. Three carved mushrooms of different heights at the end of the bluebell path were markers of their growth spurts. As the ailing sculptures were removed, I distracted my children from the loss with the magical things that grew there broom rape and puffballs and ferns. Yeats begins his poem, I went to the hazel wood because a fire was in my head. I can't claim to have been similarly inflamed when I set a short story, Wolf Point, in Hazelwood's dappled glades, but the place had got in on me. As my fictional woodsman goes about his work, the forest gives up eerie structures. Algae slicked statues Victorian follies and the remains of tiny bothies the peasants lived in. He brings his daughter for a picnic and they named the wild flowers and grasses. The old factory houses a whiskey distillery now. Swathes of the woods have been cut away in an attempt at saving native trees from encroaching rhododendrons whose dark, glossy leaves deflect light, offering no sustenance for the ecosystems that have existed for millennia. That these plants were introduced by the ascendancy seems like botanical colonialism. In the new clearings, humped stone grottoes that had not been visible to walkers for decades have appeared. It seems that some of the follies I imagined were there all along. Hazelwood looks a little ragged now, but the work will ensure this place survives to share its secrets with future generations of staggering toddlers. Sligo has inspired new contours of literature, music and painting. Yeats is eternal and has made many parts of Sligo eternal and mythical around the world. But there are always fresh ways to come to classic work and musician Michael Howard has looked to the blues to make a new version of one iconic poem of place. My name is Michael Howard. I'm going to perform my version of Yeats's poem, The Lake Isle of Inish Free, which I've given the alternative title, Bill Butler's Blues. I will arise and go now And go to Inish Free And a small cabin builder I'll play on what was made Not being rose will I have there A heart for the honeybee And live alone in the bee-loud glade Well, this, uh, this poem, uh, The Lake Isle of Inish Free, it's one that I did in school and it's been at the back of my mind for years. And when I started writing songs later, it occurred to me that the opening line was almost like a mirror image of uh, the bluesman's line. Now, the opening line of the poem is, I will arise and go now, at the beginning of the journey, if you like. And then the bluesman's line at the end of the journey is, I woke up this morning. I will arise and go now, for always night and day. I hear lake water lapping, with low sound by the shore While I stand on the roadway Or on the pavement grey I hear it in the deep heart's core You're listening to The County Measure and we're in North Sligo. The War of Independence was as fierce here as in most other parts of Ireland, 
and the civil war and its legacy was bitter and divisive. A cave in the hills above Glencar Valley, not far from the famous waterfall, provides a striking and dark window into history and human resolve. Archaeologist Marion Dowd and her colleagues Robert Mulrani and Dr James Bonsell excavated the cave, the first work of its kind to be done on any site from the War of Independence or the Civil War. So we've been carrying out an archaeological excavation of a cave up on the mountain here just north of Glencar Lake and this was a very important hideout for the North Sligo IRA during the War of Independence but then during the Civil War it kind of came into its own and it appears to have been their main hideout during that period. So we know that when the National Army came into Sligo to take back Sligo Town from the IRA in September 1922, the IRA evacuated the town and went out to Rahali House, which was their headquarters. And then the National Army moved in and swooped in on Rahali House, and then the IRA left there and fled to the mountains. About 20 of them, maybe a little bit more, were arrested by the army. Six men were killed on the mountain and another 34 got to the cave and they're supposed to have hidden in the cave for six weeks. So our project was to excavate the cave and see what material may have been left behind. And you found a lot and we're, we're going to have a look. Uh, so we'll, will we walk? Fantastic. Yeah, yeah I'm let's sure get you've going. done this many times. Lots of times. Yeah. <laughs> the cave is called... Glencar Hideout and it's on private farmland high up in Glencar Valley close to the Dartry Mountains. The walk starts off easy enough but soon the land sweeps upward at an angle of nearly 45 degrees. We think they deliberately came to this location which is about 13 kilometres away from their headquarters simply because it was the most uh, secure and the safest option. Marion, it's an extraordinary landscape. Looking over at, at that hill there, I thought they were lazy beds. But you say no, that while it is a natural valley, it's, there's this constant series of collapsings going on. Yeah, we, you know, this is over geological time where you have part of the mountain essentially collapsed outwards and it's created this valley that's known as the Swiss Valley. It's a very, very difficult landscape, but it was a perfect spot because the men would have had great vantage over the surrounding landscape. Did see any patrols coming? Absolutely, yeah. And also to remember that most of the National Army that came up at that time were not from Sligo. They didn't know the landscape very well, so the Sligo men had intimate knowledge of the landscape. They knew exactly where they were going. They knew the best shortcuts up the mountain and how to traverse the landscape they don't have the advantages that we have of Gore-Tex boots and nice rain gear. Uh, and, yeah, they're up and down the mountains quite a bit during the guerrilla war. We'll go on. The terrain gets more difficult from here. The incline increases and the soft ground underfoot is treacherous. So we're coming close to the Branley farmhouse. It's now in ruins. And this was a key part of the success of the cave hideout. I think... Something that people often forget is that there was a whole community and infrastructure of supporting men who were on the run and in hideouts, and this house was key to it. So the woman of the house, Sarah Branley, looked after the men. We know that on some occasions, when the weather was very bad at night time, and they thought that the, the army wouldn't be out, that they came down to the house and she looked after their feet. So trench foot was one of the big problems that they had to deal with in the cave. It was damp, their feet were wet for weeks and weeks. We also have to remember that they were up here in September. We've looked at the weather reports for September 1922. It was very wet. Uh, there was lots of days with a lot of cloud and mist. Um, Through it, October as well, wasn't it? I mean, yes, it's, yeah, it think of that darkness, you know, of, yeah. it's been really tough. Absolutely, and the temperatures reached minus five degrees one particular night in September that they would have been in the cave. Uh, but it is a very, very complex and complicated landscape. Another half hour or so of climbing and we reach the foot of a high escarpment. The cave is up there, though impossible to see. We'll actually put our helmets on. The final leg is a hand over hand, climb over crumbling ledges until eventually... We're just coming into the cave. You immediately get the good, dank reality of it, don't you? Oof. The cave is more like a niche in the rock, about two and a half metres wide. 
So you're looking at a living space about two and a half metres by seven metres. And it's difficult to imagine 34 men hiding here. Oh, it's Uh, impossible to imagine. How do they do it? I suppose the key thing is that when they came in here, they didn't realise that they would be here for six weeks. And certainly as time went on and the threat from the National Army decreased, They probably um, did stay in safe houses more often. But I think certainly for maybe the first week, 10 days, there were 30, 34 men hiding here. And they were basically hiding for their lives. Six of their comrades had been killed on the mountain. So they knew that their, their own lives were in danger if they were captured. The cave was well prepared. The men created a mortar floor and shaped steps down into it. And that mortar floor would have been very important because it kept the living space clean. It also kept it insulated. Just being here, you know, you, such a sense of the closeness of history and what people went through. Yeah, absolutely. I think the three of us have all been affected by it in different ways. Um, we're used to dealing with much older sites and I think it's a very powerful place to, to be. You know, there's one thing about reading about these places or, you know, this was not a nice place to be for several weeks. Um, Very, very cramped, very, very dark. It must have been very hard for the men to deal with the boredom. And they're also worrying about their family members um, outside the cave. They're worrying about whether they'll get out alive, what's going to happen to them. And uh, they've just heard that six of their friends and comrades have been killed. So it. It really is a place that's very part of a very difficult experience, you know, and we can't underestimate that either. The sea defines a whole swathe of County Sligo the sea and the mountains, the surging Atlantic that constantly changes the shape of the coastal land. Keep your eyes peeled and you'll slowly take in more and more of the remarkable coastal flora and fauna. So we're we're here at Strida in North County Sligo. To help me see at Strida, I meet archaeologist and tour guide Oriel Robinson. And it's a beautiful area, it's a special area of conservation. There are numerous wildflowers growing here. The area is also grazed. Some of it is a commonage area, some of it privately owned. And uh, there's a beautiful long beach, which is famous for three Spanish Armada shipwrecks dating back to 1588. So the landscape here is, I would call it coastal wilderness, with lots of nature and biodiversity. And there's also archaeology. Lots to of hear birds about, I'm noticing as well as we walk. Yeah, just yeah. yeah. So the, um, normally on a on a good day, or even today, we can hear meadow pipits. On a sunny day, there might be a skylark hovering overhead. And underfoot, the vegetation is dense with tiny flowers of all shapes and colours. Oriel points out a delicate, triangular-shaped flower. Lovely pyramid orchids here. These are the cerise pink orchid. They're very bright and vibrant, absolutely stunning. And that white flower there, that tiny little white flower with the yellow centre? Yes. That's eye bright. Yes. So that, we buy sometimes tinctures of that in the chemists for your, to help your, your eyes. There's other bits of vegetation here. This yellow that you see, it's, it's very, very fine and very gentle and soft and brittle. It's um, ladies' bed straw. Oh, beautiful. So they say that they used that to make hats in the olden days. Yeah. Ladies used it to make, yeah, to weave into, into for hat making. So it's amazing, everything it seems to have a use, you know, yeah. and was used by the people. Exactly. So you'd be amazed where, in the past, they would have used most of these wildflowers for medicinal purposes. So you'll have scurvy grass, for example, which is growing down here on the rocks, which is full of vitamin C. It was to build of up your immunity. Would, yes, against... And sailors mm. in particular would have suffered from that because of deficiency in good food and nutrition on board. Ah, oh, there's the sea. Yeah. It is wild today. So this is a wedge tomb, uh, at least it's been classified as a wedge tomb. So what we're seeing here is um, what's left of the actual tomb itself, surrounded by what looks like a stone circle, probably around 3000 BC in date. And they did find cremated remains of human and also of dogs. 
they would have had great knowledge of the sea and navigation they got here by boat you know and they would have transported animals and their children with them and you know can you imagine doing that 5,000 years ago or more the same sea sound one imagines then as now yeah exactly and they were very connected to the, the sea and the ocean and you can understand why they would bury their dead here because look at the views all around us the sea we've got the dunes we've got the mountains it feels like a real bounty somehow doesn't it here yeah exactly and it's good that you're feeling that because that's what this is about it's about drawing your attention and awareness to what's around you there's a a therapy in it Mm, and it walking and looking and stopping and learning yeah never seen as much as i have today yeah well i'm glad you're enjoying it (laughs) the landscape speaks for itself i always say to people you know Sligo holds you. It's hard to know why something enters and becomes part of you here. And there's a strong undercurrent of pride and loyalty to place. Something we see in sport. And how could we leave without a nod to Sligo Rovers, especially after their recent victory over Motherwell? Left foot it all! It's a glorious strike from the big centre half. The League of Ireland matters more in Sligo than it does anywhere else. There may be more successful clubs, but none of them occupy the same huge space on their local sporting radar as the Bitter Red. Rovers are the biggest show in Sligo. Their homecomings after three league titles and five FAI Cup final triumphs unique explosions of communal joy. But success is only part of the story. For many years, the club's victory, like that of Tennessee Williams' cat on a hot tin roof, lay simply in just staying there. Famous clubs from bigger places went wallop. But rovers abide, through thick and thin, and sometimes just through varying degrees of thin. To this rainy corner of the continent have come players from Africa, America, Australia, England and Estonia who couldn't have found Sligo on a map before getting here. They've teamed up with local players who've dreamed of gracing the showgrounds since they were big enough to kick a ball. When Rovers won the league in 1977, the way was led by a great midfielder, Tony Fagan, who'd been borne down the road from the ground. The title victory of 2012 was engineered by Joseph Endo, a great midfielder from Yaoundé, capital of Cameroon. Both legendary, both loved, Fago and Joey epitomised the two streams which combined to keep the Rovers River flowing. Long may it run. Proud Garchin man Eamon Sweeney there. We rove on leaving the northwest and looking towards Munster and the Banner County of Clare with all its richness. That's next week's County Measure. The County Measure with Vincent Woods is part of our decade of centenary celebrations here on RTE Radio 1. The programme was produced by Colette Kinsler. For any suggestions for the series for your county, please email county at rte.ie.